Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome. This is episode 54 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The main man philosophy was to provide financial support that enabled their artists full creative freedom. The management team pioneered outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that soon became the benchmark for the decadence and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. We didn't have any rules to follow. We would break all the rules. We didn't care. Main man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Danica Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, and David Bowie. It was the 70s, we wanted nothing to do with the 60s, and we were determined that we were the beginning of the 21st century, you know? Well, we want to wipe out everything that had happened before. As we continue to mark the 50th anniversary of the rise of Ziggy Stardust, it's the ideal time to hear from Cherry Vanilla, one of Main Man's many iconic and much lauded promotions people, who were part of Warhol's pork cast that met with David and his team in London in 1971 and would become a very important component in Main Man's push to make Bowie a global star. After working with David and Main Man, Cherry began her own career as a singer, songwriter and actress and in 2010 published her very entertaining memoir, Lick Me, detailing her adventures with Rock's Glitterati. Now living in Palm Springs, California, Cherry began recalling her main man years by describing how she became part of Warhol's Pork. Well, I had come from uh, a Madison Avenue advertising background, and then I started dabbling in being a DJ. And one night, somebody came in the discotheque and said I should go audition for an off, 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 off Broadway play. And I did, and um, I got the part. That's where I met Tony Zanetta and Lee Black Childers and a whole bunch of other downtown New York people. And so I did plays for Tony and Gracia, uh, mostly. And it was called Theater of the Ridiculous in those days. It was um, very out, out, out kind of theater. Um, lots of nudity, sex, um, comedy, um, I always believed Theater of the Ridiculous was tragedy disguised as comedy in a way and because uh, it, it was tragic at its core. So Andy Warhol would come to our, our plays and um, he saw me do a little bit in one play of Tony Ingrassia's called World, The Birth of a Nation, written by Jane County, who was then Wayne County. And... When they did Pork in New York at the Café La Mama, I was not in it. I don't know where I was at the time, out of the country somewhere. And when they got a producer to take it to London, Andy said he didn't like the girl who played the lead, which was Pork, the part of Amanda Pork. And he wanted Tony Ingracia to audition somebody else. So Tony said, what about... I was Kathy Doherty then, just sort of becoming Cherry Vanilla. And Andy said, oh, yeah, let bring her up to the factory. So one fine day in spring, 
I went up to the factory with Tony and Gracia, and I auditioned for Andy, and that was quite an experience. Tony and Gracia had gone over some script lines that he thought maybe Andy would want to hear me say, and um, Andy said, no, no, I don't have to do that. Um, do you know any hymns from Catholic school? <laughs> and I said, oh, well, uh, yeah. He said, we'll sing your favorite hymn. So my favorite hymn was Dear Lady of Fatima. And I sang it a cappella, very off-key and terribly, not, not on purpose. I just hadn't sung it in 20 years or something. And... Um, I'm not that much of a great singer as it is. So I sang Dear Lady of Fatima, and Andy and Tony just stood there with their mouths open. <laughs> and at the end of it, he said, Tony, I like her. I think she's got the part. So that's how I got the part. Before that, we had talked a lot about advertising because Andy was very interested in that. And... Um, and about Catholic school and the Catholic religion. He was also very Catholic. And he gave me the part right away. And two days later, I was on my way to London to play the lead in Pork. I had never been to the UK at all. And um, so a free trip with an actor's equity salary and a nice apartment in um, Earl's Court, um, that was the first thing that attracted me was the travel opportunity. And they spoke the same language, language that we did. So uh, I couldn't wait to get there. Plus, I was very attracted to the Mercy Beat and the Beatles and the Stones and all the English rock groups, which I had hoped to meet by writing for the American magazines, Cream and Hit Parader and um, Circus. And... I had the perfect way of meeting the rock stars because Lee would take their pictures and I would interview them and write, write about them in my column for the magazines. And um, so I thought it was a great way to meet guys, interesting guys, musicians, uh, a great way to earn a little money uh, and extend my acting career, which had basically just begun. And, um, you know, um, the fashions of London always attracted me. Uh, everybody had great haircuts. I always remember that. Not very good teeth, but great haircuts. <laughs> so we thought they have great hairdressers, but maybe not great dentists over there. But um, And the other attraction was that we had to hire half the cast to be English because of Actors' Equity, but we could take half the cast from America with us. So Tony Zanetta and Lee and Jane, these people were all my really good friends by now because we had done a couple of Ingracia plays in New York and I hung out with them at Max's Kansas City and all that. So... Not only was it a chance to travel and do this incredible thing, but to do it with my New York friends So and under the Warhol banner. So when we got there, I mean, in New York, we weren't treated like stars in any way. We were, you know, starving actors on the Lower East Side doing plays that were, you know, produced for $20, you know, and you made, you're lucky if you made $4 a weekend. So... 
to go over there and do this and to have it be with your friends and living in a beautiful apartment they supplied with your dear friends, that was really a big attraction. It was pretty racy for the time. And also there was an atmosphere in London. It was 1971 and the Oz trials were on for the Oz magazine. So there was this kind of heightened awareness of things that they considered pornography or whatever. And pork was made up of actual tapes taped over the telephone between Bridget Berlin, also known as Bridget Polk, which is how we got pork, Polk pork. So she and Andy had taped their conversations and they were, you know, people around Andy were always trying to like win his attention. It was a thing where Andy was a big observer and you always wanted to be able to tell him stories or make him laugh or entertain him. I don't know why. He just, that's what he inspired in people around him. He was very quiet himself. His basic line was, and then what happened? And then you'd continue your story and you knew he was interested. So there were crazy things they talked about on the phone. Like there was one scene where they talked about all kinds of uh I say the word, poop. Uh, and so they had this conversation, Andy and Bridget, about, well, I, I think pigeon shit is, you know, cute. And what about rabbit shit? Oh, rabbit shit. Oh, yeah, that's that comes in little pellets. And and this was this was what they were wasting their time on the phone about. But she was entertaining him, and he was obviously entertained by it. So... So, of course, they thought that was outrageous to London audiences. And then there were things like where she was describing to Andy a plate job. And I had never even known what a plate job was before that. So I used to mix up instant chocolate pudding on stage and use that and pop, plop that onto the glass plate. And we had a naked guy laying underneath the plate and, you know, all the while describing this plate job and pretending I'm pooping in the plate. And so the audience is really freaked out at that. And they started yelling things at us and being very unruly. And of course, we were of a nature where we yelled things right back. We thought it was all part of, you know, that we, we should do that. It was part of the fun. Jane County especially used to yell all kinds of things at the audience. And so word got around that we were doing this outrageous performance piece at the Roundhouse, and we were sold out at the beginning, like every night, and people came just to see what kind of circus this was. But we were hoping to go to the West End at some point. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if they ever would have accepted us at the West End, but... Um, because the audiences dwindled, because the reviews were pretty much terrible. I was lucky. I got a good review on my acting ability, but the play got terrible reviews, and so eventually the audiences dwindled, and we never did get to the West End. And um, so that was very sad. And, and I don't think the play has ever been performed anywhere by anybody since, which is a shame. It should be. Now it would seem tame, I think, you know. In the Lee Black Childers episode of this series, he mentioned that one of the first things that you guys did when you arrived in town with Pork was go and see David perform in a small club. 
That's right. It was called The Country Club. And uh, we saw a poster. I didn't know about David Bowie, but Lee was a photographer of rock groups and rock stars, and he knew all about David because David had been on a radio interview tour of the United States like a year before or something. Didn't perform, but he did radio interviews. And there were photos of him wearing a dress, and I think it was from Mr. Freedom, and um, long blonde Lauren Bacall hair and yellow patent leather Mary Jane shoes and this long blue dress. And Lee said, oh, Cherry, we saw a poster. We were waiting for the bus to go to rehearsal at the Roundhouse. And Lee Childers said, Cherry, you've got to see this guy. We both have to see it. I have to photograph him. You have to interview him because I was writing for rock magazines in the States at the time. So we arranged uh, with uh, the club to uh, – they actually sent a car for us. We used to love it in London because – we would say we were writing for these rock magazines, which was true in some cases. In some cases, we were lying. But then they would send a car for us and everything so polite. And um, so we went to the country club, and it was a little kind of folk scene at the time with people sitting on the floor, very small club. I think it was kind of behind a suburban house, as I remember. And Angie was pregnant at the time, and she was doing sound and lights. And um, so we went to the club, and we introduced ourselves to Angie Bowie. And she said, oh, darling, you know, we love Warhol, and la, 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 you have to introduce yourselves to David and all that after the show. So the show was, David was on acoustic guitar. He had a big floppy felt hat with a feather in it very loose kind of uh, shiny pale blue pants and a little silk white shirt, I believe, and yellow patent leather Mary Janes and um, the long, beautiful blonde hair coming down from the hat. And then he had Rick Wakeman on the keyboards. Uh, I think it was just an acoustic piano and Mick Ronson on electric guitar. And that was the whole band. And he was pretty much doing material from Hunky Dory. And once in a while, he slipped in something that they were just, I think, had just started working on, which was Ziggy. But, you know, they didn't have a drummer and a bass player and all that, so quite different arrangements. And at one point, he decided to do the song, Andy Warhol. And so he, Angie had already told him that we were there, so he asked us to stand up and take a bow. So Jane County and I stood up and we took a bow. And I used to do this thing as directed by Tony Ingrassia in Pork where I would pop out one tit. So I did that. When I stood up to take a bow, I popped out a tit. So, you know, the audience, <laughs> that audience loved it. But um, David was, you know, I don't think he was shocked, but <laughs> it was unexpected. So... That's how we first encountered him. And then, of course, after the show, we went backstage and we all got together. And then we went to uh, El Sombrero, I believe. And we went there and we hung out and we danced and drank and we got to know each other. And that was our, our first ever meeting. And we, we kind of loved each other instantly. Uh, I was very sexually attracted to Mick Ronson because... 
Angie was there, and she and David were married, and so, and I, I always thought Mick Ronson was incredible, and, um, but he, I frightened him. He was a very <laughs> shy boy from Hull in the north of England, and he didn't know what to make of me because I was like ready to take him home to bed, you know, and uh, he laughed and giggled, but we never did get there. So that was our first meeting. So everyone in Port got on well with David, Angie, DeFries and Danny Gillespie, all part of Bowie's inner circle at the time. How did you then come to work for Mainman once the team all hit America? We, we kept in touch with them while Pork was going on because they came to the play and they came to our um, big opening night party and we went out to Beckenham, I think it was, where they lived uh, a few times for tea, all very kind of proper in a way. <laughs> Sunday tea with Angie would cook up and we'd go there and have like a proper Sunday tea. And so we got to know them a bit before we even left London. And then it was mostly Tony Zanetta who stayed in touch with Tony DeFries while we came back to America. I didn't have much interaction with Tony DeFries until Tony came to America on his first few visits to deal with us. And he would stay at a hotel and um, he would invite Lee and myself and Zanetta over to, sometimes Jane, over to his hotel. And of course, he'd let us order anything we wanted, bottles of wine and dinner. And, and we were, you know, we still weren't making any money. We were still doing these silly plays and working part-time jobs and everything to pay our rent. So we were thrilled just to have the free meals and wine. And we would talk our ears off to him. And, you know, we were giving him information that he wanted. And we didn't have any kind of ego of thinking we should be charging for this information. We're giving him, you know, I had connections with the DJs in New York at the radio stations. And we all had connections with the magazine writers and the newspaper writers and other musicians. And so we were giving him very useful information for him to apply to David's career. And we just gave it freely, no charge. We we just didn't even think about money. And um, we were having such a fabulous time talking about ourselves and feeling important. He made us feel important that we could supply this information. You know, we were all there again, there with our friends together, doing something kind of really interesting that we knew could maybe lead to something. And yet we were just having fun being together. And Tony was fun. Tony Tony was fun. He had a good sense of humor. And I think th- the thing is that Tony, Tony trusted us, which was amazing because we weren't professionals about what we were doing or what we were planning to do for him or what he was planning to do for us. He knew who we were and what we were, and yet he trusted us. And I suppose he envisioned that it might even be better that we didn't know what we were doing because then we didn't have any rules to follow. We would break all the rules. We didn't care. We didn't build our careers on being PR women or important uh, producers and road road managers. We So we weren't trying to protect any part of our careers. So I think he recognized that 
wow, this is kind of interesting. Why not have a whole circus going on around Bowie? Which we were, in a way, a whole circus going on around him. And I saw him once when he came to see Elvis Presley at Madison Square Garden. And that was a short visit. I think he actually flew that time, but nobody was supposed to know that because he was supposed to be afraid of flying. And we had like, God, I, we had like, I don't know, second row seats or something to see Elvis. I had never seen Elvis live at Madison Square Garden. And of course, that was the first time I saw Bowie with the Red Rooster haircut and the new wardrobe and the platform boots. And, he, you know, he had a whole new look. He had the Ziggy Stardust look because that's what they were working on. And Angie had had the baby by that time and so forth. And so that was a short visit. We hung out with them maybe maybe only that one night after the concert. I don't really remember more than that. And then the next time I saw them was when they came by ship and we met them at the dock in New York City when they got off the ship and they were getting ready for their first tour. That would, that would have been September 72. Then right away, I was thrown into this position of running an office because of Tony Zanetta, Jane, Lee, none of them had had the kind of corporate experience I had on Madison Avenue or the education I had with business school. So I knew how to run an office and work all the machines. In those days, it was telex and copy machines that were primitive. And I knew how to do all that. And I knew how to set up charge accounts and blah, blah, blah. So they put me in charge of this office. Tony Zanetta found the little office space. Tony DeFries lived on the second floor. It was a duplex apartment. We had the office on the downstairs floor. And I ran the office. So I mostly stayed in New York while Lee went on tour and Zanetta went on tour. So I only got to see Bowie and Angie for a short time while they were in New York. They went right away to Cleveland and Philly, I think, were the first couple of dates. So then I saw them again when they came back to New York to play Carnegie Hall. And I had a lot to do with setting that up with the New York disc jockeys and so forth, getting them to play his record and whatnot and organizing all the public relations for the Carnegie Hall concert and the party after and all of that. And so then they were in New York for, mm, I don't know, maybe a week, and I hung out with them then. And then eventually I started going to a couple of the tour dates, but I would just like fly out for, you know, one night and fly back because I, I had the office duties to take care of. And then I hired somebody uh, to help me run the office so I could go to more gigs because I wanted to be at every show. I, I, I was in love with David Bowie and his music, and I wanted to see every possible show. By the second tour, I had other people running the office, and I went to every show, and I went to each city before the shows to set up the PR and the interviews and all of that. So and by the second tour, I saw a lot more of them. David had created a lot of attention here in the UK when he announced to Michael Watts in a Melody Maker interview that he was gay. So how did the US music press handle David's sexuality when the subject was raised? 
Well, that was Cliff Jar, funny enough, a journalist at the time who I actually worked with in advertising years before, who was gay himself, but in the closet like all those boys in advertising were at the time. And he asked Bowie, and Bowie actually said he, he was bisexual. He didn't say he was gay. It was enough to get a lot of publicity. It wasn't all that shocking, but most gay guys hadn't come out of the closet, not not the ones in that, that kind of field of journalism and rock and roll. And, and so he was sort of the first, certainly the first musician I can remember to come out of the closet as being gay. I don't think Elton even came out until later. And that was a little later uh, when Cliff asked him. That was kind of maybe a year or two down the line. So word had gotten around already that he might be bisexual. I never believed he was gay. I, I, I was there at his hotel room or his apartment many a morning when whoever had spent the night was leaving. And I would say it was mostly girls. But I always thought that boys from England, excuse me, <laughs> but I, I always had the feeling that they didn't refer to themselves as gay or bisexual, but they had all messed around in, in school. In the school days, they had all experimented a little. Uh, a couple of them told me stories about that, so I, I kind of thought that was a thing in England that wasn't as big a thing or wasn't admitted to as much in, in America. So um, I would say that that fueled a lot of publicity, and then there was me saying the opposite. So all those who wanted to say he was gay or printed articles saying he was gay or is he gay, blah, 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 blah. Then they had me saying he was great sex and I'm a woman. So people got like that. I kind of built my whole PR campaign around the sexuality, to tell you the truth, because it built such a mystique. Well, is he or isn't he? You know, I mean, here's this woman, hetero, saying he's straight, and then everybody is saying he's gay, and what is he, you know? So I think, like most English boys, he probably fooled around a little, a curiosity. Now, Angie, she's given many, many interviews, and I don't think that she's ever said that she saw David or she took part in David having had her uh, homosexual sex. or I, I don't recall that, but she often said that she would find Mick Jagger there in the morning and they'd be naked in bed together, him and Bowie. Well, you know, in those days when we took tons of drugs and tons of alcohol, we took our clothes off and we often crashed in bed with boys or girls, it didn't always particularly mean we had sex with them the night before. I, I don't really know. I was never part of a threesome. Now, Tony Zanetta says he was part of a threesome with Angie and David, and I believe him. So what they did, I never went any further to question, but apparently they did have a threesome. So who knows? You know, now nobody would even bat an eyelash, you know? Our timing was good. Being immersed in the New York scene and then getting very close to Bowie and all his contemporaries here in the UK, I'm interested to know if there was anyone in particular that you would cite at the time as being on par with David as far as breaking new creative ground. I think in a less spectacular way, maybe Mark Bolin 
sort of express that. I mean, he was wearing feather boas and eyeliner uh, and kind of female-looking shirts and things before Bowie. But Bowie really blew the top off it, I think, with his costuming and haircuts and makeup and the interviews he was giving. And stuff. Mark Boland, for me, was the first one that I saw dressing a little bit like a floozy, a female floozy. And then Bowie, Bowie kind of followed. So I will give Mark credit on that one. <laughs> Fascinating recollections from main man publicist Cherry Vanilla, one of the key members of the promotions team during the Ziggy Stardust era. In the next episode, Cherry recalls the New York alternative art scene and the importance of legendary venues like Max's Kansas City and the fascinating people that congregated there who inspired Bowie. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from the Ziggy era on the Main Man label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>